Turn to John chapter 6. There is, um, there's ultimately no middle ground when it comes to responding to Jesus. The call of the gospel, the call of the good news of Jesus Christ has no gray areas. Now there are a lot of gray areas in life. There are even gray areas in the Christian faith. But there's no such thing as a sort of Christian. Let me illustrate this, illustrate what I mean here. I want to read to you a true story called Salvation. It's by a poet named Langston Hughes. He was an African-American poet in the early to mid-1900s. It's not very long, and and I might have read it before. Um, But regardless, Hughes writes this. I was saved from sin when I was going on 13, but not really saved. It happened like this. There was a big revival at my Auntie Reed's church. Every night for weeks there had been much preaching, singing, praying, and shouting, and some very hardened sinners had been brought to Christ, and the membership of the church had grown by leaps and bounds. Then just before the revival ended, they held a special meeting for children to bring the young lambs to the fold. My aunt spoke of it for days ahead. That night I was escorted to the front row and placed on the mourner's bench with all the other young sinners who had not yet been brought to Jesus. My aunt told me that when you were saved, you saw a light and and something happened to you inside. And Jesus came into your life and God was with you from then on. She said you could see and hear and feel Jesus in your soul. I believed her. I heard a great many old people say the same thing, and, and they seemed to me that they, they ought to know. So I sat there calmly in the hot, crowded church, waiting for Jesus to come to me. The preacher preached a, a wonderful, a rhythmical sermon, all moans and shouts and lonely cries and dire pictures of hell, and then he sang a song about the ninety and nine safe in the fold and one little lamb who was left out in the cold. And then he said, won't you come? Won't you come to Jesus? Young lambs, won't you come? And he held out his arms to us young sinners there on the mourner's bench. And the little girls cried. And some of them jumped up and went to Jesus right away, but most of us just sat there. And many great old, uh, a great many old people came and, and knelt around us and prayed. Old women with jet black faces and braided hair. Old men with work gnarled hands. And the church sang a song about the lower lights are burning. Some poor sinners to be saved. And the whole building rocked with prayer and song. Still I kept waiting to see Jesus. Finally all the young people had gone to the altar and were saved but one young boy and me. He was a rounder son named Wesley. Wesley and I were surrounded by sisters and deacons praying. It was very hot in the church and getting late now. Finally, Wesley said to me in a whisper, cursing under his breath, I'm tired of sitting here. Let's get up and be saved. And he got up and was saved. Then I was left all alone on the mourner's bench. My aunt came and knelt at my knees and cried while prayers and songs swirled around me in the little church. The whole congregation prayed for me alone in a mighty wail of moans and voices. And I kept waiting serenely for Jesus, waiting, waiting, but he didn't come. 
I wanted to see Him, but nothing happened to me. Nothing. I wanted something to happen to me, but nothing happened. I heard the songs and the minister saying, why don't you come? Dear child, why don't you come to Jesus? Jesus is waiting for you. He wants you. Why don't you come? Sister Reed, what's this child's name? Langston, my aunt sobbed. Langston, why don't you come? Why don't you come and be saved? Oh, Lamb of God, why don't you come? Now it was getting really late. I began to be ashamed of myself holding everything up for so long. I began to wonder what God thought about Wesley, who certainly hadn't seen Jesus either, but was now sitting proudly on the platform, swinging his knickerbockered legs and grinning down at me, surrounded by deacons and old women on their knees praying. God had not struck Wesley dead for taking his name in vain or for lying in the temple. So I decided that maybe to save further trouble, I'd better lie too and say that Jesus had come and get up and be saved. So I got up. Suddenly the whole room broke into a sea of shouting as they they saw me rise. Waves of rejoicing swept to the place. Women leaped in the air. My aunt threw her arms around me. The minister took me by the hand, led me to the platform. When things quieted down in a hushed silence, punctuated by a few ecstatic amens, all the new young lambs were blessed in the name of God, and then joyous singing filled the room. But that night, For the first time in my life, but one, for I was a big boy, 12 years old, I cried. I cried in bed alone and couldn't stop. I buried my head under the quilts, but my aunt heard me. She woke up and told my uncle I was crying because the Holy Ghost had come into my life and because I'd seen Jesus. But I was really crying because I couldn't bear to tell her that I had lied, that I had deceived everybody in the church that I hadn't seen Jesus and that I knew, I I didn't even know if there was a Jesus at all anymore since he didn't come to help me. Langston Hughes died in 1967, still not believing in Jesus. In the mid-1700s, Charles Wesley, he wrote this with regards to his conversion. He said, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood Died he for me who caused his pain, for me to him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for O my God, It found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread, for Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. There's ultimately no middle ground when it comes to responding to Jesus. It's either belief or unbelief. Now, that doesn't mean you only have one chance at salvation. It doesn't mean that at all. As long as there is breath in our lungs, salvation is open. 
as long as there is breath in your lungs, life in your body, salvation is open to you, and that is the mercy of God. But one of the most troubling aspects of Langston Hughes's testimony, besides his unbelief, is the fact that the, the church laid his conversion on his own shoulders. Just get up and go forward. To them, it was entirely up to him. They begged him and they pleaded with this 12-year-old boy to get up and, and approach this altar, to go forward and, and thereby be saved. But that's not how salvation works. And, and Jesus didn't use these tactics. In fact, Jesus, throughout John chapter 6, he, he actually walks away from the crowd. He actually walks away from them across the Sea of Galilee. And increasingly throughout the chapter, he tells them things that are very difficult for them to understand and very difficult for them to accept. And so in today's passage, uh, we see him once again say some things that effectively turn off the crowd. They even polarize his opposition. But in reality, what Jesus is doing is not just turning people away. He's revealing what is in their hearts. He's not turning them away. He's revealing what is really in their hearts. So John chapter 6, let me read verses 41 through 51. John 6, 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's just stop and pray one more time. Lord, help us to understand. We are a needy people, and so I pray that you would give us what we need this morning. Feed us from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' words, um, they were not what the people wanted. They were not what the people expected. If you remember back in verse 15, we've been working our way through this chapter now for a few weeks. Uh, back in verse 15, after they had been uh, miraculously fed by him uh, with five barley loaves and a couple of fish, with baskets and baskets left over. After they were miraculously fed by him, they were going to take him by force and make him king. But he withdrew from them. And now, here, in, down in verse 41, beginning in verse 41, they're essentially rebelling against the claims implied in what he's saying. They're rebelling against him. They're rejecting him. And what they, what they demand is that he prove his claims. He's been proving them all along. But they demand, make these demands. 
And he refuses to meet their demands on their terms. And instead, he continues to teach them and, and to teach them even harder and harder things. And, and in reality, he, what he is doing is, is forcing them to come to grips with who he really is. And this actually ends up illustrating his point. See, if you remember what he had said back in verse 36, he had said, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Jesus knows that this crowd is hostile to his claim, hostile to his claim that he is the son of God, hostile to his claim that he is the savior, the Messiah, the Christ. And so as we pick up the story here in verse 41, one thing that we need to see is that the events of this, the events of this chapter, when we kind of put all of this together, they take place over, over probably a couple of days. Uh, the crowd has followed him across the sea, as I said, and, and when they found him, the picture in verse 25 of when they finally find him again, uh, they found him on the seashore. Um, but now it seems that they probably have made their way into town. They're walking along to the town, and maybe they've even made it to the synagogue. Because the focus here shifts from the crowd to the Jews. I don't know if you've picked this up. So far in John's gospel, whenever he has mentioned the Jews as a specific group of people, he's been talking about the, the Jewish religious leadership, the priests and the scribes, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it's important for us right here... Um, to remember that, that all of the people involved in these stories, all of them are Jews. All of them are Jewish. The disciples are Jewish. The crowd are Jews. Jesus is Jewish. And even the Apostle John, the, the writer of this book, they're all Jewish. But all of a sudden, in verse 41, it says, So the Jews grumbled about him. Why the switch? Earlier, he'd really been using pronouns, saying they, they, referring to the crowd. He calls them the crowd up in verse 22. But why the switch here? Well, all through John's gospel, there are two meanings for this name, this title, the Jews. And the first, as I said, is that it is the, the Jewish leadership. But the second, the second meaning is beginning to become more and more pronounced in the gospel as we work our way through this, because John will increasingly use the term the Jews for those who will outright reject Jesus as their Christ, their Messiah, their Savior. And remember, and I want to point this out for us, especially in this day and age. John is using this term. John is using it. And John is Jewish. This is not an anti-Semitic term, as so many will try and tell us today. He's using this term to illustrate what he has said all the way back in, in the introduction. In John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, it says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, that is, the Jews. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. So two meanings for this title, the Jews, the Jewish leadership, and, and more and more as we work through this, his own people who refuse to receive him and ultimately will out, outright reject him, even, even going so far as demanding his crucifixion. Now obviously those two things are connected, those two meanings for this term, since it was the Jewish leadership that led the people in rejecting Jesus and even in crucifying him. 
And Jesus, for his part, is displaying great restraint. He's displaying great patience with these people. He's showing them great mercy. See, God had promised for the Jewish leadership. He'd promised in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 6, he says this, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. He's talking about his people declares the Lord, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, the Jewish leadership. You have scattered my flock, have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall there be any missing, declares the Lord. Hear the promises there. But Jeremiah goes on, and as he's quoting the Lord here, and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And this is a prophecy specifically about Jesus. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he, be, he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, part of those promises from Jeremiah 23, part of them have not yet been fulfilled. Or we could say part of them have been fulfilled, but only part. But Jesus here would have been justified if he had, to use Jeremiah's language, if he had attended to the evil deeds of these Jewish shepherds right here. He would have been justified. And he will, he will deal with them, he will attend to them. But for now, he continues to share the gospel with them, even as they are growing in hostility toward him. He continues to share the good news even with those who are even grumbling against him and ultimately will reject him. And so we have to ask the question, why were they grumbling against him? Why were they grumbling against him here? Verse 41. Why do people like Langston Hughes in that story? That was his own account, his own testimony of not being saved. Why would people like that reject Jesus? Well, the answer is essentially this. We can see it here. Their minds are in bondage to human reasoning. Their minds are in bondage to human reasoning. This is the first of, of three truths about salvation that we need to see in this passage. That apart from Christ, we are in bondage to our own human reasoning. Look again at these first three verses. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and, father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. What Jesus had said so far to them has caused them to, to grumble or murmur amongst themselves. And, and you know what that is. It's that kind of confused sound that sort of ripples through a crowd when people are angry when they're discontent, when they're frustrated with what they're hearing. There's an occasional no or boo in the background. They're grumbling against him. This is the same sound that, that Moses had heard, actually several times, 
as he was leading God's people, the people of Israel. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 24, almost immediately after God had freed the people from their Egyptian slavery, almost immediately after they had witnessed the the plagues, after they had crossed over the Red Sea on dry land and seen the Egyptian army destroyed behind them by God's mighty hand, in Exodus 15, 24, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what should we drink? And even after God had proved himself faithful to them, time and time again, many years later, as they're wandering through the desert, God has provided for them time and time again. He's answered that question when they asked, what do we drink when they're grumbling? In Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would, uh, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader to, to go back to Egypt. Unless we get too self-confident, this is the same sound that we hear, this kind of grumbling sound. We are instructed to keep away from this. We are instructed to keep this grumbling out of our hearts as, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining, some versions say. Do all things without grumbling, without murmuring. Or 1 Peter chapter uh, 4, verse 9. Listen to this one. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, he says. And the reason that we're instructed to not grumble is because grumbling is always, a, it's always connected to disbelief. It's always connected to disbelief. It's always connected to a, to a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God and His promises. That was the problem for the people of Israel as they grumbled in the desert. One commentator, a commenter, even says that, that by their grumbling here in John, they preserve the genuine succession of unbelief. By their grumbling, they preserve the genuine succession of of unbelief. They picked it up from the generation before them. They were just like the Jews in the wilderness. They have a Savior leading them to freedom, and they'd rather stay in captivity. It's scary out there. It's safe here in prison. I'd rather stay here as a slave in prison than be out there following God. The reason that they're grumbling was because the things that Jesus was saying to them didn't seem logical. It didn't seem logical to them. They could not reason in their own minds and come to the same conclusion that he was bringing them to. Look at their reasoning process again in verse 42. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Does he, not, uh, does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Logically speaking, this is the only conclusion that they can come to. Logically speaking. Scientifically speaking, they plead to science as our modern world does. He can't be the bread of life. He can't be God. Science says otherwise. We know his mother and father. How can, 
they ask this rhetorical question when they say, how, how can Jesus claim a heavenly origin when, when we all know his parents? I've been a fan of uh, the original Sherlock Holmes stories for most of my adult life. If you've ever read any of them, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. One of the most famous sayings that he had is this. He says to Watson, When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. These people have witnessed his signs and wonders, and they are rejecting his improbable statements. They've witnessed his signs and wonders, and they are rejecting his improbable statements. He, he can't be who he says he is. I know he just fed us with five loaves and two fishes, and there's 5,000 men, which means 5,000 families. There's, there's like 20,000 people here, and, and we've been following him all across the Sea of Galilee, and he fed us with just this little bit. We want to see him do that again. He's been feeding the, uh, the, the, the he's been healing the sick, verse 2 tells us. We've seen these miracles that he's been doing, but boy, we know his parents. He can't be, he can't be anything special. He can't be someone from heaven. His claims are so illogical to their minds that they couldn't see what he was really saying to them. He even, even said, so how can he now say, as if he's claiming to have just descended from heaven just now, but he's the son of Joseph. He's just a man. He's just a good teacher. They call him rabbi in verse 25. But he's done the impossible. And he's done the impossible in their sight. And besides that, John has already told us who Jesus really is. For starters, John has said in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then he said, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And these people who are here rejecting Jesus as Messiah. These were the ones who were fed with the five loaves. They'd witnessed the signs, as I said, that he was doing on the sick. These people had come to him. They'd been following him. Yet in verse 36, he says to them, but I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you did not believe. And verse 42 tells us why. Because they were in bondage to their own human reasoning. Here's the irony, I think, of this account, of this story. If they had known who Jesus' true parents were, this would have all made sense to them. But the truth was that they did not know his father. Now, later in the gospel, he will tell them this explicitly, you do not know the father. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 19, as the tension between them, between Jesus and the Jews here, between Jesus and his opposition, as the tension continues to grow, we read this, John eight nineteen. they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. And the conflict will only continue from there. But the roots of the why, the roots of the why of this conflict are right here. They're in bondage to their own human reasoning. These things can't possibly be true. We know your parents. But again, like the Israelites, these people are grumbling really against God. And so Jesus confronts their grumbling, which was 
not only insulting to him, but it was also dangerous to their souls. Because grumbling is really a, a symptom of thanklessness, of ungratefulness. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Does this not describe these people as they reject the Messiah who is standing in front of them? But our God is a teaching God. This is the second of the three truths about salvation that we need to see about this passage. God is a teaching God. Verse, pick it up in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus here, in, in rebuking the Jews for their grumbling, he reiterates really what he's already said to them. But he says it a little bit differently than before. See, the beginning of verse 44 is, is really the negative counterpart to the beginning of verse 37. So, so let's put them together and I'll show you what I mean. I'm going to read the beginning of 37 and the beginning of verse 44. All that the Father gives me will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Can you hear that? I want to read it again. The beginning of verse 37, the beginning of verse 44. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. These two statements put together, they equal the same truth. The only people who can come to Christ are those whom the Father gives to Christ. And God only gives to Christ those whom He wills, and they will come to Christ. And just to hammer this point home, Jesus even uses this word draw in verse 44. Now, in English, the word draw can mean a whole bunch of different things, right? We draw water, and we draw pictures. But it's more than that. Um, we might kind of get this sense of even, even coaxing when we see the word draw there. But that's not what this really means. It's not, it's not like the Father is trying to convince people to come to Jesus, like, like Langston Hughes' aunt and the church there was trying to convince people to come to Jesus. That's not the picture. Draw here means this. This is the definition of the Greek word. It means the object being moved is incapable of propelling itself or in the case of persons, is unwilling to do so voluntarily. Unwilling to move on his own. Jesus is saying this. We are totally incapable of coming to Jesus in repentance and faith unless God the Father acts to bring us. Jesus' words here are they're kind of striking. They're even offensive to our sensibilities. They're offensive to our human reasoning. But our human reasoning is in bondage and sin, bondage to sin. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. He's not capable to understand them unless they are spiritually, because they are spiritually discerned. See, these, these Jews believed that they didn't need Jesus to draw near to the Father. That's what they believed. They didn't need Jesus to draw near to the Father. 
They were near simply by virtue of their Jewish heritage. They drew themselves near. I'm going to shut it off. They, they didn't believe that they needed Jesus to draw near to the Father. They were, they were near because they were Jews. Because of their Jewish heritage. They drew themselves near by following God's law and by obeying their rituals, they believed. But Jesus was saying, no, you can't do this on your own. You can't even figure out who I am on your own. Jesus wants us to see God's sovereignty over salvation. He wants us to be clear with regards to to God's methods. And and this is where so many get tripped up because they they look at this. They They look at this idea that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And no one will come to me or can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And we struggle with this sometimes because they assume that this means that God's methods are not loving. See, the first question that we should have is not how can a loving God condemn anyone to hell? That's not the first question that we should have. The first question that we should have is, how can a holy God save any of us? How can a holy God save me? I've met me. How can a holy God save me? Verse 45, Jesus, he paraphrases Isaiah 54, verse 13. You know why he puts this here? Look at again at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, specifically in Isaiah 54, verse 13. Everyone, uh, and they will all be taught by God. That's written in Isaiah 54, verse 13. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He puts this here, he says this here, because he's saying that when a person comes to Christ, it's because God has taught them. That means that, that what he means there is that he draws, when, when he draws them to Christ, he, he does so by teaching them. They have heard and learned from the Father. And sometimes it takes a long time. The one who is from the Father has seen the Father, Jesus says. You're learning these things from me. He's right now standing in front of them, teaching them, drawing them to himself. Even if they're grumbling against him and ultimately rejecting him, he's still patiently and graciously teaching them. See, Jesus is the God who teaches. We no longer need any other intermediary. We no longer need any other intermediary. We don't need any go-between between God and, and us. We don't need Moses anymore. We don't need a prophet We don't need a priest who can go before us to God and hear from God for us because Jesus is the God who teaches. In fact, Jesus is the God who is our great high priest. He's the God who writes the laws, his law, on our hearts, teaching it to us. In fact, the, the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, he says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. 
and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And before Jesus ascended into heaven, he made this promise in John chapter 14, verses 25 to 27. He says this, These things I have spoken to you while I was still with you. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus has gone to the Father, and he is, he is in the process, even now, of preparing a place for his people. And that final truth that we need to see this morning is this. It's really just verses 47 and 48. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. That's the truth. That's the truth. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus says in John 14. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responded, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. See, this this isn't about bread in the wilderness. It's about the living bread. The the people, they still wanted to eat from bread so that they didn't have to eat from bread every day. They wanted literal bread. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. There's a blunt statement. They ate that bread, and they died. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Remember, this whole chapter is kind of an an exposition. It's It's an exposing of the meaning behind the phrase, I am the bread of life. And he's picked up the metaphor again here. Gone back to the, to the, to the manna from heaven. But just look again at the very end of verse 51. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, our teaching God, Jesus Christ, in writing his law on our hearts... He did so by establishing a a new covenant with us, a new promise for us, a covenant where he has promised, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Do you know when he made that covenant? Do you know when he made that promise, that that blood oath? It was on the cross. That's when he established the new covenant. 
See, we've not yet fully realized all of the promises of God. We wait for a new promised land, a new heavens and a new earth. We still wait to dwell with God as his people. He, our God, and we are his people. We still wait for that time when we dwell with God that way. But he has made this covenant, this promise to us. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul explains it this way. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So there's a warning in there. The Lord's Supper, the the bread and the cup. They're only for one group of people, Paul is explaining. That group of people is repentant sinners, Christians, who have trusted in Christ. There's ultimately no middle ground when it comes to responding to Jesus. It's either belief or unbelief. And so if you do not yet believe, if you don't know if you believe, in a few minutes the elders are going to come forward and we're going to pass around a plate of bread and a tray of cups. We're going to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And if you do not believe or if you don't know if you believe yet, don't eat the bread. Don't drink from the cup. Just pass by. But if you do believe, you do so. We eat and drink to proclaim our Lord's death until he comes. We eat this bread and and drink the cup as a renewal of the covenant. As a reminder that we are to hold fast to the promises that he has given promise that as as new covenant Christians he is our God and we are his people the promise that he will come again and he will take us to himself that where he is we may be also I am the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats this bread he will live forever and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh It's talking about the cross. Let's pray. And then the elders are going to come forward and we're going to eat of the bread and drink of the cup and together proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard words to understand sometimes. And even as Jesus was saying them here to the Jews, they were digging in their heels and rejecting him, disbelieving him. So Lord, it is my prayer that we would not do that. 
but that we would embrace Christ and run to him. Lord, I pray that as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we would do so to proclaim Jesus' death, to glorify him. We do this in remembrance of the Christ who died for our sins. And so, Lord, I pray that we would do these things to, to the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me chat would you pray for the bread father we are reminded this morning that you sent your son the bread of life on our behalf the bread broken on the cross to satisfy what the world and everything around us cannot to satisfy the hunger. Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice. May we be mindful of it here this morning as we partake in the elements and remember the sacrifice on our behalf that we will one day eternally be with you in glory. We thank you and praise your name for that wonderful gift. In Jesus' name.